Good morning. Why don't you stand with me as we sing? There's no space that his love can reach. There's no place where we can't find peace. There's no end to amazing grace. Take me in with your arms spread wide. Take me in like an orphan child. Never let go, never leave my side. Man, good morning, good morning. Go ahead, be seated. Welcome. Good to see you today. You uh, drove through the fog. You made it. I'm glad you're here. Guest, we're really glad that you've come to worship with us today. Inside that worship guide, there's a little slip that says guest member response. We would love for you as a guest to fill that out if you would and drop it in the box at the door as you leave there. That's where we give our offering each Sunday into those uh, boxes that are at those doors. So there's one at each door as you leave. But uh, we'd just like to know who you are and uh, glad that you're here with us. And again, I remind each of us that slip says guest member response. So 
If you have a response, if the Lord really uh, touches you about something, we'd love to hear about that. And uh, or if you have a question or whatever you'd like to communicate with us, put it on that slip and drop it in that box. But I'm uh, glad to see you today. Student camp for students, sixth grade through the 12th grade. You'll find all the information about it in the worship guide. But that deposit, the camp deposit, is due today. So uh, for our students that are going to camp, 6th grade through 12th grade, notice uh, the information that's in the worship guide there. And speaking about student camp, you'll want to put this uh, date down on your calendar, February the 21st. That's the date for our student auction that we always have here at the Garden City campus. That's our fundraiser for our students to raise money to help them to uh, either go to camp or on a mission trip. And uh, so be watching for more information on that, February the 21st. So mark that on your calendar, okay? Then kids camp. Also, we're talking about camp today, kids third grade through fifth grade. So again, you can check out the insert in the worship guide. There's information uh, about it in there. The deadline for that deposit for that one is February the 9th. So uh, take advantage of the opportunities for our children and our students to go to camp. And then this coming Saturday evening is Real 127. So uh, we could use your help. So if you uh, can help, again, there's some information about it in the worship guide, but uh, we'll let you text that number and say, I'll volunteer to help. So uh, we would ask you to do that if you have that opportunity to do that. Well, let's pray. Let's talk to the Lord a minute. Father, here we are. You know every one of us better than we know ourselves. And so we just simply come to you right now, Lord, and we say, what do you want to do in our heart today? What do you want to do in our life? Speak to us through your word. Give your word power. And help us to be receptive. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, for putting up with us a lot of times. And thank you for saving us. So today, we praise you. We thank you. And we simply say, what would you have us do? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me be 
My strength is failing, the end draws near, and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. time together as a church family and praying. And I really am encouraging you. Maybe there's someone that, that in your life team, if they brought up something that needs some prayer, maybe this is the time that you go to them now and you pray with them. 
There is power in praying together. And I know it seems awkward for some of us to move around the room and everything, but I'm telling you, this if there's something that shouldn't be awkward, it's his people praying together. So I'm really encouraging you to find someone you want to pray with. Maybe uh, we heard that from Pastor Leo, the guy who runs the shelter in China, that there are seven kids that are sick right now that wouldn't be that big of a deal if they had could get good health care, but all the hospitals are full right now. So those kids really need some prayer. Maybe you, you got some little ones here who haven't joined the children's church yet. Maybe it's time for you to pray with your family, but I do encourage you, don't just let these few minutes pass by. I encourage you to pray. Let's spend some time talking to him. creation suddenly articulate the thousand tongues to lift one cry then from north to south and east to west we'd hear Christ be magnified His fame would burst from sea and sky, from rivers to the mountain tops. We'd hear Christ be magnified. Christ be magnified, let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified, y'all to run my life. Christ be magnified. Finds its inmost melody 
every human heart its native pride. Oh, then in one in rapture, the praise, we'll see Christ be magnified. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. This be our prayer this morning. I won't bow down to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be for my feelings. I hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because death is just the doorway to resurrection life. If I join you in your sufferings, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory, all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing, my song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise, Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life, Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified, let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in thee. Oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in thee. Amen. All right. Kids, it's time for you to go to Children's Church now. And the rest of us to spend a moment greeting one another.
Good morning, Garden City. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Lewisburg. Good morning, all you AFC champion, Lamar Hunt trophy holding, Super Bowl bound Chiefs. Isn't that beautiful? Is this fun or what? Now, seven more sleeps. Seven more sleeps. If you've got kids, you know what I'm talking about because that's how time is measured in sleeps. Seven more sleeps till we get there. It's funny, though, when you have these two-week gaps, um, you get to the point where it's like the media obviously has nothing else to say. You know what I'm saying? They just start repeating. They start looking for dumb things that players start to say because it's so much time. You just, you're just sort of like, it's time to play the game. All right? But I'm just reminding you, it's been 50 years. Enjoy the journey, all right? Enjoy the next week. One of, I'm convinced, the fun little things connected to sports, and uh, especially, I, I think, for football, nicknames. And we happen to be cheering for a team that has some pretty cool nicknames when it comes to the Kansas City Chiefs, all right? So I thought we just kind of do a little quiz this morning and see what you really know, all right? So uh, a couple of, couple of chiefs. Let's start with the guy who steers the ship, all right? Mr. Andy Reid, nickname? Big Red. That's exactly right. I think that works, all right? Big, if you have never seen the video of Andy Reid in the punt, pass, and kick competition when he was a kid, you need to look it up. He is a monster compared to all these other little kids, all right? Big and lots of red. I mean, I think it fits, all right? How about this guy? Tyron Matthew. I mean, how, how you talk about defense, impact, I mean, really can't even measure that in just numbers, what he brings to the defense. Got one of the greatest nicknames ever. What is it? The Honey Badger. Why? Because the Honey Badger is like the most fearless animal on the planet. Honey Badger will take out a cobra. No joke. Crazy, fearless animal. Um, Tyron Matthew, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, he was, a, he was like a runner-up for the Heisman. He was. A lot of people forget that. I mean, he was pretty... I, I can't remember what college team he played for. Can you guys... Remember, oh, yeah, that's right, the LSU Tigers. I forgot about that now that you mention it. All right, how about this guy? Next one, Tyreek Hill, fastest guy in the NFL. What's his nickname? Cheetah. That's exactly right. How about this one? Mr. You Got to Fight for the Right, all right? Anybody, anybody know his, his nickname? Zeus. That kind of fits, I would say. That, that actually fits. Let's do one more, one more. He's actually the, the kicker. His name is Harrison Butker. Um, in our household, we call him Harry Son Butker, all right? Harry Son Butker, which his nickname is Butt Kicker, all right? Because his last name is Butker, all right? Now, here's, here's what I want you to see. Each of those nicknames reveals a quality. It reveals an ability. You're the cheetah if you're fast, right? The name tells you something significant 
about each of those players. Today, I want you to think about that and how it pertains to God. Specifically, when God names himself. I want you to know that we can be sure that name is packed with who he is and with what he intends to do. See, when God picks a name, he doesn't pick a name just like we pick names because like, oh yeah, I like the sound of that. Or it's a relative, right? God doesn't pick names just because it sounds good or, or he's named after someone else, but he chooses names for the sake of revealing things about himself that deepens our love for him and strengthens our faith in him. So before we read the scripture, let me go ahead and give you something today. You got your outline. I encourage you to grab that sheet of paper, grab pen, pencil, whatever you got. And I want to teach you something about the name of God before we read the passage today. The most common and most important name for God in the Old Testament is a name that our English versions never actually translate. They never do. But when you see the word Lord, and in a number of translations, it'll be in all capitals, okay? Not every translation does it this way, but some of them are all capitals, all right? When you see Lord, this name is behind that word. And actually in the Hebrew, it's only four letters. It is the letters Y-H-W-H. And as you might guess, if you've been around the Bible for a little bit of time or you've been around church for a little bit of time, it may have been pronounced something like Yahweh. That may be the way it's pronounced, Yahweh. So when you see this capital, Lord, you know it is the name of God, Y-H-W-H, that may have been pronounced Yahweh. Now, when the Jews saw that name, they held such reverence that they wouldn't even say it. They would not verbalize the name. They wouldn't risk taking that name in vain. And so whenever they came to this name in a reading, they would pronounce it Adonai. They didn't want to say Yahweh, didn't even want to risk flippantly using God's name. And so they would use the term Adonai, which means my Lord. And I'm saying that's kind of the same thing that our English translations of the Bible have done wherever you see these actual Hebrew letters, they translate it, Lord. The English word Lord for us, we think, doesn't communicate a proper name. Okay, when we think proper names, we think like Jeff, uh, Jennifer, right? Proper names. But I'm telling you, in the Bible, this just happens to be translated like this, but this really is God's proper personal name. 
The importance of it can be seen in the fact that it's in the Old Testament some 7,000 times. 6,828 to be exact. Which is three times more than the general term for God, which is Elohim. It's not, it's not listed. It's about 2,600 times. Why do I tell you that? I would just say it seems apparent to me that God aims to be known as more than, than just a generic deity. You call him God. No, he wants you to know his personal name. And that name carries a unique character, and it carries a unique mission. You're like, Jeff, there's one more block. I know there's one more blank. The, the last blank is the term Jehovah. It is the term Jehovah. Where did Jehovah come from? Well, Jehovah comes from an attempt to take the consonants of Yahweh, add to it the vowels of Adonai, and when you put those two together, you get Jehovah. It's not hard to see how people would do that because every time they came to this term, when they were reading the, 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 the scriptures, they would say Adonai. Well, when you begin to blend those two together, that's where Jehovah comes from. This year, as a church, we want to be on the same page. And when we say we want to be on the same page, what we mean primarily is we want to be on the same page as our God, Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah. And today I want to show you some things about that name that helps to explain why we want to be on the same page with him. All right, let's read some scripture. That's where the authority comes from. So Exodus chapter 3 um, all week, we are trying to be on the same page. We're reading sections of the Bible together. We want to read the entire story of God. And then on Sundays, we talk about something from within what we read during the week. Exodus chapter 3 is where we land this week. It's all about the name of God. Here's what it says in verse 13. Moses said to God. Now remember, this is the moment when God has called Moses to go back to Egypt to lead his people out of slavery. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I, I would argue that this little passage really is the context and the evidence for us to, I believe, where God provides the interpretation of what his name means. Now, there's a couple of reasons that I believe that. One is the name Yahweh. So when he gives those four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, -H, Yahweh 
and I am. Both come from, they are built upon the same Hebrew word, hayah, right? How do you remember that? Hayah, remember? That's kind of what, that's the word. Secondly, Yahweh in this passage seems to be used interchangeably with I am. Let me show you. In verse 14, he said, I am has sent me to you. God said, that's what you're to tell him, Moses. I am has sent me to you. But then watch what he repeats in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, the Lord. Now, what's the term for the Lord? That's Yahweh. This is I am. This is Yahweh. Look at the words. Same words. Has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And I'm telling you, I think it is very safe to say that God's purpose in this meeting with Moses is to reveal like he never has before the meaning of his personal name, Yahweh. And it's anchored in this phrase in verse 14, I am who I am. I am who I am. When you ask God, who are you? And God answers, I am who I am. I would, I'd be willing to submit to you today, there are no greater words in the whole world. What, what would be greater words than these? And whatever words you submit to me that you would also think are great, I'm telling you those words are only great because this is true. I don't know how you get more foundational, more basic than the name of God himself, I am who I am. And the question is, well, what in the world does that mean? Some of you have read that story your entire life or it's been read to you your entire life. You went to Sunday school, you went to Bible study, you've read it, and what does it mean? Let's dig in a little bit today and see if we can understand a little more about what God reveals when he gives us his name. Here's the first one. What does God's name reveal? It reveals, first of all, that God exists. He exists. You say, Jeff, did you study all week long for that one? I mean, doesn't that seem obvious? Doesn't that just seem basic? And I would say maybe so, but I think there's a reason it needs a blank today. And the reason it needs a blank today is because a lot of people live as though that's not true. And many people live as if it is true, it really doesn't bear anything in our life. Here's what I mean. Let's have some fun and suppose. Let's suppose that number 15 has invited you to his home. You okay with that? Can you go there? Anybody about to explode? All right, number 15. Mr. Patrick Mahomes has invited you to his home for dinner. As you enter the first room of his home, he is there sitting by the fireplace, but you walk right past him without a glance and without a greeting. For the whole evening, you never look at Patrick. You don't speak to Patrick. You don't thank Patrick for inviting you to his home. You don't even ask why he's called you there. 
Somewhere during the dinner, there's a reporter who is also present, and the reporter asks you, hey, do you believe in the existence of Patrick? And you say, absolutely, I do. In fact, I believe that this is Patrick's house. In fact, tonight, I am enjoying Patrick's food from Price Chopper, and I am enjoying Patrick's furniture from Nebraska Furniture Mart. I absolutely believe in Patrick. But practically speaking, throughout the night, you have acted as though you do not believe he exists. There has been no demonstration of an affection of your heart. His gifts, not himself, seem to be at the center of your attention. And I would submit to you that that is exactly how some of us relate to God. Remember the day in school when you discovered that the air that you breathe is not just made up of oxygen? Can you remember that? It's like, I, I can remember that as a kid when, when you, you, you're in science class and all of a sudden they're like, hey, the, the air is not all oxygen. And it's like, oh, right? It's about 21% oxygen. It's about 78% nitrogen. And then there's this 1% that's a combo of carbon dioxide and, and hydrogen and some other things. And, and yet every time, if, if somebody asks you, hey, do you believe nitrogen exists? Your answer would be, yeah, absolutely. But your belief has made absolutely no difference in your life. And what I mean by that is on most given days, you don't think about nitrogen. You don't. You think about the stuff that you believe matters. And I'm saying that's exactly how some of us relate to God. The Bible says that one day, we're going to stand before him. If you don't know that, you need to hear that. One day we're going to stand before him. Face to face, he the judge. And sometimes I think we have this perspective of, you know, I wonder how much evidence God's going to have against us. I wonder how much, you know, research God's going to have to do. I, look, I'm convinced that in a lot of cases, God's never going to have to move past the first two questions. Question number one. Did you say you believed in me? Well, yeah. Question number two. Then why is it that I had such an insignificant place in your life? Why is it that you didn't feel more admiration toward me? Why is it that you didn't seek my wisdom more often? Why is it that you didn't spend time with me? Why is it that you didn't strive to know the way I wanted to make all of your everyday decisions work? Why did you treat me as though I'm like nitrogen? And I'm saying contained in the name of Yahweh is the first and most important truth about God. God exists. And for those who will stop pursuing their own glory and their own pleasure long enough to consider that truth, it will make all the difference in your life.
So let's not skip it. I am. God says, I'm here. Second, what does God's name reveal? Secondly, it reveals that no reality exists behind God. I am who I am. If you could push back, and let's get this panoramic view of of all of creation, right? Let's say before there was an earth, before there was a universe, what was behind all that? And the answer, God. God. But then if you took another step back and tried to take another panoramic view, what's behind him? Like, where did he come from? How did he get to be the way that he is? If you ask that to any of us, Jeff, Jeff, how did you get to be the way that you are? I would answer things like, well, I had parents who gave me a set of genes, and then they, they raised me in a, in a certain way, and then I've been surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of, of influences in, in the environment in which I've lived. They helped me become who I am. But I'm reminding you today that when we ask God how he got to be who he is, his answer is different. His answer is, I am who I am. Nobody gave me a set of genes. Nobody brought me into existence. Nobody shaped my personality. I had no beginning. There is no reality outside of myself that did not come from me. There is no force or influence on my character and my power except what comes from me. God would say, I am utterly absolute, and behind me there is no reality. Asking the question, why is God the way he is, would be kind of like asking me, Jeff, when are you going to stop hitting your wife? That is unanswerable. And the reason it is unanswerable is because it's a question that is assuming a state of affairs that does not exist. I don't hit my wife, so there is no answer to the question. And that is exactly what we're dealing with when we ask God, why are you the way that you are? There is nothing behind God that can answer that question. Why is he the way he is? Because he is, I am. Third, what does God's name reveal to us? It reveals that God does not change. He does not change. The book of Malachi, God declares, he says, I, Yahweh, do not change. He says it. If God is who he is and he's not determined by any force outside of himself, then then he doesn't need to change like we do. I need to change. Because sometimes I make decisions, but I didn't see the whole picture when I made the decision. And after I get the big perspective, then I got to change my decision. Sometimes I got to change because of my mistakes and my weaknesses and where I fall short. But when it comes to God, he sees the whole picture. Beginning to end, he sees the whole picture. And there, and there is no weakness with him. 
He is never caught off guard. He is never backed into a corner where he might have to act out of character or compromise his integrity. He is the God who does not change because he is I am. His name is the solid foundation of our confidence in his faithfulness. Let me give you one more, one more. What does God's name reveal? God is an inexhaustible source of energy. He is an inexhaustible source of energy. Write down, after you get that one, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Isaiah 40, 28. It's not on the, not on the TV for you today, but just a verse that I encourage you to check out. Here's, what it, here's how it reads. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. I, the prophet is saying, look, if God is the everlasting reality, if he's the creator of the ends of the earth, which means if he created everything, then all energy, all motion, all combustion, all fusion, everything originates in him. Everything's got to get started somehow. Since God is the first and the absolute reality, the answer is it all starts with him. Isn't it pretty cool to know that God never needs a charging station? Isn't it cool to know that God never needs a backup system? Can I tell you that God doesn't need to plug into anything, but everything needs to plug into him? If God ever shut down, there would be absolute nothingness. But the good news is he never tires, Isaiah said, and he never grows weary. He is our life, and he is our strength, and he will be for all of eternity. All right, that's part of what it means. What does that mean for us? Here's the first, therefore. Therefore, this is what it means for us. Our view of God does not define him. If he is I am, then our view of God does not define him. His name means that, that objectivity is crucial, more than our own subjective feelings or desires, right? We may want God to be a certain way, or we may feel that, that we can't, you know, he can't be the way that people want him to be. Here's the message. What I feel or what you feel, what I desire or what you desire God to be does not make God who he is. When God says I am who I am, he puts an end to the notion that everybody's view of God is as good as everybody else's. When God says I am who I am, he puts an end to the notion that everybody's view of God is as good as anybody else's. No, God is who he is, and nobody's opinion of him really makes a difference of who he is. Therefore, our calling as those that he has created is we want to know who he really is, not who we would just like him to be. And I'm telling you, that's why I would push you with everything that I've got to jump 
on the same page with us. Every day, open your Bible and read who he tells you he is. Not who you think he is, not who somebody told you he is, but read who he tells you he is. It also means for us that we must conform to God and not he to us. I mean, if you ever just stop and think about how we tend to get this in some other areas of our life. This morning, I'm wearing glasses. And I, I don't like wearing glasses when I speak like this. I wear contacts all the time, all right? And they are, I get my money's worth, all right? They're thick. I've told you this before. My, my eyes are bad. I cannot see distance. Well, the more birthdays I have, there's other stuff I can't see now either. And so uh, all kind of stuff. But I, I wear contacts all the time to be able to see clearly. And I can see with my glasses, but it's just different. You know what I mean? And especially when I'm standing here talking to you today and, and I got... I got a microphone and my glasses who are battling for this ear. It's like, which one's going to have that? And when you're trying to get comfortable and you're trying, it's just weird. And, and the, the focus is a little different. You know why I'm wearing glasses? I got like a little thing going on with this eye, just trying to get it cleared up. And I, I talked to the doctor. And the doctor said, you shouldn't wear your contacts. You should wear glasses. Well, who does he think he is? Seriously. I mean, just because he studied like gazillion hours and courses and, you know, just because he's helped hundreds, probably thousands of people in terms of diagnosing and, right, helping people along, better health, you know, right? Seriously, who does he think he is? I'm wearing my contacts today. I mean, there are some of you who have the same attitude, but most of you in the room would be like, dude, you're, you're, you're foolish. You're foolish. And I'm saying, isn't it funny that we kind of get it in the other areas of our life? How much more should we get it from a God who has never, ever missed on anything. He's never missed on anything. So why does it appear sometimes that I live as though I, I, I act like he's unreasonable? And he tells me one thing, and I, I, I really, I, I think I'm wearing my contacts, because who does he think he is? And so we do our own thing with little thought of conforming to his daily will and character and an absolute God. And when we do think of him, we have this tendency to picture him the way we want him to be, right? So, so when I do come to him, it's, 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 I'm coming to him like I, I want him to be so that I know he will respond to me the way that I want. But if God is who he is and not who we make him out to be, then we must conform to God and not he 
to us. And oh, the good news I'm telling you is when you read the story of God, when you read the story, it paints a vivid picture of who we find him to be when we will trust him. From his name, the great I am, we are given more specific names, specific names that reveal his qualities, they, they reveal his, his, his character, how he meets us in our weakness. Come on, you've been reading, hopefully you've been reading, and if you haven't been reading, here's my weekly challenge to you, just push the button today. Just push the button today, get, get, the, get the reading scripture app, get the, get the hard copy if you want it, and come on, just push the button today. You're like, but I've missed this much already. I understand. I'm telling you part of the story today so you won't feel so far behind, all right? But push the button today and just start. Abraham, some of you have read it. God gives him a promise when he's 75 years old. Abraham, you're going to be the father, right, of, of so many that you won't even be able to count it. And he's going, I'm 75 years old and I don't have one child. Well, guess what? It took 25 years for the first child to be born. God says at 75, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a, 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 a son. He's 100 before this son is born. Now, come on, you know Abraham was excited when that deal happened. And then immediately you read the story. God gives him the instruction. I want you to take your son Isaac onto the mountain of God, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. What? I've, I've waited 25 years for this gift you said that, that, that my descendants would, would, would be more than could ever be counted, and, and now you want me to offer him to you. But come on, you read the story, Abraham up the mountain of God, Isaac with him, and there God provided a ram, a ram that was in the thicket, a ram that no, Isaac would not be offered that day. It would be the ram that would be offered as a sacrifice. And it tells us that in Genesis chapter 22, on that day, Abraham learned a name of God. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. That's what he did. He saw it. God provided the ram, and he, and he knew it. See, there was something going on in Abraham's heart. We learned it last week. We talked about the fact if you put anything else at the center, you put anything else at the center, the next morning, right, there is disillusionment. There is disappointment. Not even Isaac could fulfill the vacuum in Abraham's life, and God is walking him through a circumstance to say, Abraham, only I, only I can be the center. I understand that I, Isaac, he, he is this blessing, but he can't be at the center because only I can provide what fills the vacuum inside of you. Jehovah Jireh, that's that term some of you know. The Lord will provide. But before that, you read where that 25 years of waiting didn't exactly pass smoothly, did it? 
about 10 years into the promise of God telling Abraham, hey, you're going to have a, a son, Abraham's wife is saying, I am not pregnant yet. So Abraham, why don't you take Hagar? She was a slave that came out of Egypt, was a part of Abraham's household. Why, why don't you have a child with her? As the story unfolds, you read it. There's jealousy, there's envy, there's a battle that takes place within a household. Suddenly we read of Hagar finds herself out in the desert and somebody meets her there. He is God. And when it's all said and done, she gives him a name. She declares his name. He is the God who sees. And come on, here, here's a lady who you imagine, she, she's thinking at this point in my life, I got nothing left. I, I've been thrown out of this family. I, I'm not, my, my home is in Egypt. I, I was with Abraham. I got nothing left. Nobody sees me. And God reveals who he is. He is a God who sees. Last, last night, last night, I had the privilege of sitting in a room of about 600 people who had gathered for the purpose of um, moving forward the mission of Restoration House. Some of you remember, um, it's about five, six years ago when we first started talking about the possibility of a Restoration House, some sort of a place where victims of human trafficking could find restoration. Kansas City, for more years than I know, has ranked in the top five in terms of human trafficking in our country. And there was a group of people that we got to be um, a part of in the very beginning that just began to ask the question, what does God want to do? What do we think God wants to do here? And last night when I'm sitting in that room with 600 people and I'm watching five years, six years later what God has done. The plans are in place right now with a new facility that would house about 40 victims of human trafficking at one time where they could walk out of a three-year process of seeing healing and restoration. And once that happens, which it is well underway, Kansas City will be on the top of the list, but not just as a place where human trafficking is the highest, but it will be on the top of the list because there will be no larger restoration facility anywhere in the country. And the plans are in place. And the vision is in place. And the dream is in place to make it 400. I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today, last night. I mean, I've been prepping this all week, and all of a sudden it's like, hmm. 
thank God for a small group of people who believed the truth about a God who sees. A God who sees a lady who's caught in human trafficking and believes that nobody on the planet cares, that nobody on the planet can do anything about her situation. Thank God for a group of people who believed that there really is a Jehovah Jireh, a God who provides. And I'm saying in five or six years, God has done things that was more than we knew how to ask or imagine. I am who I am. I am who I am. Oh, y'all, all throughout the story of God, he meets us in our weaknesses. He meets us in our struggles. He meets us in our trials. He meets us in our pain. Always revealing that he is enough. Until the ultimate reveal. It's what the ram in the thicket on the mountain of God that became the substitute for Isaac was really about all along. It was the God who provides and he provided the ultimate when he ultimately gave what Abraham was not required to forget to give. He gave his son. So make sure you get this blank filled in. God has drawn near to us in Jesus the Christ. God has drawn near to us in Jesus, the name that is above every other name. He has drawn near to us. I, I want to just show you a couple of scriptures and then we're going to wrap this. Jesus is, is answering the criticism of some Jewish leaders one day. And he says to them, your father Abraham, he rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And they all look back at Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. It was, it was a phrase of going, Jesus, you're, 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 you're here now. Abraham was way back then. How have you seen Abraham? And this is Jesus' response in John chapter 8, verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Jesus takes the immeasurable truth of the name of God. He wraps that in humility of servanthood. He offers himself as the sacrifice for our sin. And he made the way for us to see the greatness of God without fear. He chose to do that. He chose to do that. They didn't take it. He chose to give. I, I love the brief glimpse that the Apostle John gives us when, when he tells the story of Jesus and those disciples. They've been praying in the garden. 
Judas arrives with the, with the Roman guards who are going to arrest him. And the Bible tells us that Jesus asked the question, who do you want? And they reply, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what John records in John chapter 18, verse 6. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. That is just one of the coolest things, I think, in the whole Gospel of John. At simply the mention of his name, those Roman guards who came to arrest him would soon beat him, would soon nail him to a cross. Those Roman soldiers fell to the ground at simply the mention of his name. Do not mistake what is happening at the Garden of Gethsemane or a cross, or the tomb. Nothing was taken from him. He gave it all. Because he is the I am, who always has been, always will be. And one day, you will fall before him too. For some of us, it's happened in this life where we have come face to face with the one we recognize to be, the one who made us and the one who has saved us, and we have fallen before him to say, we need you. Jesus, I need you. I, I have rebelled. I have tried this on my own. And nothing fills this vacuum inside of me. But I believe that you died for me. You arose from the dead. I put my trust in you. I ask you to forgive me and I want you to be Lord. But I'm just telling you today that if you don't fall before him in this life, you will fall before him one day. And the questions. You said you believed in me? Well, yes. Then why is it that I had such an insignificant place in your life? I got one question I want to leave with you. Here's the question I encourage you to write it down. What do people learn about God through my story? What do people learn about God through my story? You look at Abraham and you see we learn about a God who provides. You, you, you look at, at Hagar and you see we, we learn about a God who sees you. you. You look at Moses. Moses is a guy that really doesn't know where he's going. He, he, he doesn't know. He, he's, 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 he's a Hebrew, but he grew up in Egypt. He's a, he's a prince of a people that, that he doesn't belong to. He, he, he takes a man's life. The first 40 years, he's trying to lead. The second 40 years, he's running in the wilderness. And when he's 80 years old, 
God shows up and says, I am who I am, Moses. Isn't it wild that God reveals who he is to a guy who doesn't know who he is? You're not here by accident today. You're not listening to this by accident here today. There is a God who loves you like crazy. And today he wants you to know. He wants you. And he is enough. He is the great I am. In light of what we have heard from him today, what do we need to ask from him? Let's back.